welcome to Gone But Not Forgotten, the podcast all about remembering the lives and careers of actors who died young. Today, I will be covering the life and career of the old Hollywood actress Rita Hayworth. Rita Hayworth is a name most known amongst classic film fans, especially for her iconic role as the titular Gilda, a femme fatale with endless sex appeal. However, the real Rita Hayworth, born Margarita Carmen Cancino, was much different than the characters she portrayed on screen. She struggled with the love goddess label that was put upon her and preferred to paint, dance, and spend time with her two daughters. Rita Hayworth was more than just a sex symbol. She was a talented actor and dancer, ran her own production company, and that was a rare occurrence for actors in old Hollywood, let alone a woman, and fought the studio system that kept her under their suffocating grasp. Without Hayworth's Alzheimer's diagnosis in the early 1980s, advancements made to help those struggling with the disease most likely would not have been made. In this episode, I aim to present the real Rita Hayworth and share her accomplishments as a woman in the Hollywood studio system. I hope to shed some light on her complicated personal life as well as her almost lifelong career in the entertainment industry. But first, to know Rita Hayworth, one must understand her father, Eduardo Cancino. Eduardo was born into a long line of Spanish dancers and grew up in a popular act within the vaudeville circuit with his sister, Elisa. While performing in New York, the siblings became friends with one of Rita's future co-stars, Fred Astaire, who danced in an act with his sister, Adele. While performing in a Broadway production called Follow Me, Eduardo became involved with one of the showgirls, 19-year-old Volga Hayworth. They married a year later in 1917, and Margarita was born on October 17, 1918, in Brooklyn, New York. Eduardo never got over his disappointment that his firstborn was a girl, as he had wanted a son to take over the Cancino dancing name. Unfortunately, Rita's brothers, Eduardo Jr. and Vernon, did not display the natural talent that she did, and therefore her father decided to set all of his attention on improving her skills. Rita later commented that, From the time I was three and a half, as soon as I could stand on my own feet, I was given dance lessons. I didn't like it very much, but I didn't have the courage to tell my father, so I began taking the lessons. Rehearse, rehearse, rehearse. That was my girlhood. Eduardo and Elisa were becoming extremely successful with their act and frequently were away from home, assigning Volga to take care of their business and familial needs. She began a long journey with alcoholism that would end up taking her life trying to grapple with the fact that she had to give up her own career while her husband was popular. The Cancinos finally settled down in Queens, and six-year-old Margarita was enrolled in public school. She was noted for being incredibly shy. However, Eduardo had dreams of Hollywood and relocated his family to California in 1927. He opened a dance school where he taught actors like James Cagney and Jean Harlow. At the age of 12, Rita was pulled out of school and made to dance with her father full-time so she could help make a living for her family. The duo danced in floating casinos that were docked off the coast. Margarita experienced physical abuse from her father when she did not do exactly as she was told. The Cancinos moved again closer to the border of Mexico when Eduardo booked him and Margarita a spot in a Tijuana nightclub called The Foreign Club. The two presented as husband and wife, and Eduardo encouraged Margarita to play up her sex appeal when they danced. Sometimes they would perform up to five shows a night. Margarita's brothers were allowed to be enrolled in school, but Eduardo forbade her from completing her education. Tijuana was no place for a 13-year-old girl, and as the years went by, Margarita shrunk even further into herself. 
Several people who met her during this time assumed she didn't even know how to speak English. She was so silent. Rita later said that she secretly rebelled and planned to run away, but I never ran. My mother knew. She understood. Any sensitive adult would. Rita's daughter Yasmin later said, I think the, the trauma in my mother's childhood was the fact that she had to work. She was forced to work. It was something that there was no choice. She had no choice. Uh, she didn't have a normal childhood. I mean, how could she when she was uh, dancing, training, performing? There was no time for the fun things of childhood. She, she just, she wasn't allowed to have that. And, and I think, yes, she was robbed. When Rita Hayworth biographer Barbara Leeming interviewed Hayworth's second husband, Orson Welles, decades after Rita's death, he revealed that she had told him her father began sexually abusing her during this time. While Rita herself never confirmed this to be true, it very well could have been the case. Either way, Rita experienced severe trauma from her father that altered her perception of herself and other men in her life for years to come. One of Margarita's childhood neighbors, Loretta Parkin, recalled that she would watch the dancing cancinos rehearse in their living room. She said, When she made a mistake, he would shout at her. I never heard her answer him back, not ever. She would simply do the routine again until he was satisfied. She was always quiet, sweet, obedient. Eduardo and Margarita continued to dance in casinos in Tijuana, with Volga often leaving her sons behind to accompany the two. Volga's presence was now necessary as Margarita was unsafe in the venue she danced at and could not count on her father, who was often drunk, for protection. At home, Margarita and her mother slept in the same bed while Eduardo stayed in the front room, possibly because Volga knew about what was going on between her husband and daughter, and she needed to keep Margarita safe. After performing for several Hollywood bigwigs at the Agua Caliente in California, 16-year-old Margarita was invited for a screen test, which was filmed by cinematographer Rudolf Maté, most known at the time for his work on The Passion of Joan of Arc. The test went well, and she received her first part as a dancer in the 1935 adaptation of Dante's Inferno. Star Spencer Tracy said the film was one of the worst pictures made anywhere, anytime, and that anybody who survived that deserved all the recognition that they got later on. Margarita soon signed a six-month contract with Fox under the name Rita Cancino. The studio began their alterations immediately, putting Rita on a diet as she was considered to be overweight. She took lessons to improve her diction and posed for publicity photographs. She was paraded all around town with many famous men at the insistence of Fox. Her first speaking role came in 1935's Under the Pampas Moon, she remembered that her first day on set was a disaster. They'd given me a nine o'clock call and I misunderstood. When I came in at nine without makeup or costume, a dozen people were running around the set yelling, where's Miss Cancino? I was so upset I couldn't get my mouth open two hours later when I was finally made up, dressed, and in front of the camera. I've never been sure, but I'll bet they dubbed the dozen lines I had. Rita played several small, quote-unquote, exotic roles in her early years at Fox, but never seemed to get used to the concept of performing in front of a camera. An interviewer sent to speak with Rita said that she just didn't know what it was all about. Producer Winfield Sheehan, who had discovered Rita and given her the opportunity for her screen test, was working on getting her the lead in Ramona. 
During the screening of tests for the film, 39-year-old ex-car salesman and aspiring oil man Eddie Judson walked in and was instantly enamored with Rita. Around this time, Fox merged with 20th Century Studios and Sheehan was replaced by head Daryl F. Zanuck, who immediately fired Rita from Ramona and dropped her contract completely. This was an unfortunate surprise for Rita as she had desperately wanted this role. This was a perfect chance for Eddie Judson to worm his way into Rita's life, promising her parents that he would introduce her to the biggest people in Hollywood and get her career back on track. The thing was, he didn't actually have any contacts within the industry. Eduardo was not aware of this and agreed to let Judson become Rita's agent. Judson immediately set to work on controlling every single thing about Rita. Her friend Roz Rogers said that she couldn't understand what she was doing with him to begin with. The more we knew him, the more we hated him, because Rita seemed so defenseless with him. He was like a father figure to her. He told her what to do. Despite his controlling behaviors, Judson did help Rita book several small parts in films, like Meet Nero Wolf and Hit the Saddle. She made about $200 per film and finally booked a seven-year contract with Columbia Pictures, which was helmed by Rita's future nemesis, Harry Cohn. He decided that Cancino was too Spanish-sounding. Rita took her mother's maiden name, and Rita Hayworth was born. Shortly after signing her contract with Columbia, Rita eloped with Eddie Judson, which came as a great disappointment to her parents. Rita's youngest brother, Vernon, recalled that his mother slapped Judson on several occasions when he tried to reconcile with his new wife's family. Rita's parents' disappointment was perfectly reasonable, as Rita was merely 18 and had not consulted her parents beforehand. It was well known that Judson had married Rita for her money, as he had no job and would often brag that she was a dead cinch for stardom. Rita later remembered that she married him for love, but he married me for an investment. From the beginning, he took charge, and for five years, he treated me as if I had no mind or soul of my own. Judson began pressuring Rita to lose even more weight and lower the pitch of her voice, ended up making her move her hairline back through an electrolysis process. It was a painful process that involved removing Rita's hair for a period of two years. She finally received her most important part to date in the 1939 film Only Angels Have Wings, in which she played Cary Grant's ex-girlfriend. Rita did not enjoy working on the movie and found the director, Howard Hawks, to be incredibly demeaning to her. Hawks later said, She never was a great actress, but she certainly was a beautiful girl. It all seems very natural. Yes, it does, doesn't it? Like my hair this way? I thought it was different. I could hardly believe my eyes. I had no idea that you... Well, that's a pretty small world. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Judy. Well, that's so sure we should have done that. Mm -hmm. Same old goo, you haven't changed a bit. <laughs> Harry Cohn hired a publicist for Rita named Henry Rogers, whose wife Roz became close friends with Rita. Henry said he mostly talked with Judson about Rita's career. I don't remember ever having had any kind of personal conversation with her in which she expressed her views about life or anything, he said. Roz added that Judson never let Rita make up her mind about anything. He treated her like a child. Rogers was hired to make up a completely false story about Rita's backstory that made her out to be much more successful and well-known than she really was. She appeared on the cover of Life magazine for the first time in July 1940, and her fame only rose from there. Judson kept their home life open 24-7 for press and photographers to come in and talk with Rita, or rather himself, as he trained her for exactly what he wanted her to say. 
He also became a pimp and would get her to sleep with men who would help advance her career. Henry Rogers said that it seemed to me that Eddie would have sold his wife to the highest bidder if it would have enhanced her career. Much of Rita's image was solely built off of publicity in the early years of her career. Rogers later detailed his involvement. Part of the campaign was that we wanted to make sure that people knew who she was and that people became aware and saw her. You can't do that if the woman stays home every night. So they would go out and I would alert the photographers ahead of time that Rita Hayworth and Eddie Judson were going to be at Ciro's at 11 o'clock this evening. Be sure to take their pictures. The result of all this was that in four to six weeks, Rita Hayworth, this unknown actress, was on the cover of Look magazine. And this was, in my opinion, the launch of the press career, at least, of Rita Hayworth. By 1940, there were 3,800 articles and 12,000 pictures of Rita Hayworth in publication. After years of small projects that did little to nothing to advance her career or acting chops, Rita was loaned out to Warner Brothers for the film Strawberry Blonde. It was another turning point in her career. She appeared opposite James Cagney and Olivia de Havilland, playing Virginia, a cold-hearted woman whom Cagney has his eyes set on. This was the first in many femme fatale-esque roles that she became most popular for playing. Hello, Virginia. The boys will be here any minute. What kept you work late? A little. Oh, it's too bad you didn't have time to get out of your uniform. Oh, I had plenty of time. Well, then why didn't you? Why should I? I'm proud of my uniform. It's a sign to the men that women not only have the same right to work as the men, but that in the eyes of... Oh, hush, Amy. You're not at a suffragette meeting now. The tyranny of man over woman. The stupid convention that says a woman shall wear such and such. The outlaw. Amy, just tonight, try to be a woman, not a pimp. Women throughout the ages have... Oh, it's a lovely night. Who cares if we ever get to vote? Rita was replacing Anne Sheridan, who was having disputes with Warner Brothers and refused to do the movie. Makeup artist Perk Westmore was tasked with making the brown-haired Hayworth into the titular Strawberry Strawberry Blonde. He told the film's producer, Hal Wallace, that her head is so large and she has so much hair that it will practically be impossible to put a wig on her. Whatever color you decide on, she will be happy to have it made that color. Then, at the end of the picture, we will dye it back to its natural color. However, Rita ended up liking the change and remained a redhead for the rest of her life. Her next project saw her being lent out to her old studio, 20th Century Fox, for the 1941 epic Blood and Sand. On the set, she met lifelong friend, choreographer Hermes Pan. He remembered that Rita was down to earth. I liked her right away. She would sort of confide in me. I guess she knew that I wasn't after anything and that she could talk to me without me talking to other people. We became very close because she trusted me. He noted that Rita preferred to dance rather than talk and she struggled with mood swings. Suddenly, from being sort of up, she would just get down. You could tell that maybe she was preoccupied about something. Then it would pass, and she would be herself. In the film, Rita played Donia Sol, a rich woman who is after the attention of aspiring bullfighter Juanito, played by Tyrone Power. Pan noticed that a whole different personality came out for the camera. People would think of her as the glamorous love goddess, and yet she was just a little eight-year-old girl. It was an amazing transformation. You couldn't believe the two were the same person. 
Director Ruben Mamoulian said, on the screen, if an actor can move, he needs little else for a successful career. Rita Hayworth moved better than anyone else I have ever seen in film. The camera responded to her movement as it did to Garbo's intelligence and Chaplin's mime. marked the first time she would be dubbed over by a different singer, an occurrence that happened in every single musical number she ever did. Rita was incredibly disappointed, as she wanted to train her voice, but Harry Cohn would never let her for unexplained reasons. She said, I wanted to study singing, but Harry Cohn kept saying, who needs it? And the studio wouldn't pay for it. They had me so intimidated that I couldn't have done it anyway. They always said, oh no, we can't let you do it. There's no time for that. It has to be done right now. The only time she ever sang was in a sketch for her appearance in a 1971 episode of The Carol Burnett Show. After she completed filming for Blood and Sand, Eddie Judson decided to trick Rita into sleeping with studio head Harry Cohn. The couple were set to spend the weekend with Cohn on his yacht, but Judson planned to call at the last minute pretending to be sick, leaving Rita alone with Cohn. She adamantly refused, which only made Cohn more obsessive over his desire to sleep with her. Rita later said that, in front of people, Harry Cohn would say, I never put a hand on her. Of course he hadn't put a hand on me, as if I would let him. However, Cohn began keeping tabs on every single thing Rita did and even put microphones in her dressing room. But Rita's friend, Roz Rogers, said that Rita was stronger than we all thought. As she got older, she got a little more guts. She got stronger and stronger and was able to survive. Rita decided she needed to end her marriage with Eddie Jensen and actively began challenging his control over her. Unfortunately, while Rita was working hard to make money to support her and her husband, Jensen was out having an affair with several women. When Rita approached him to ask for a divorce, he threatened to throw acid in her face and destroy the possibility of her ever working again. This prevented her from looking into a separation any further. Rita began working on her next film, You'll Never Get Rich, in which she played the object of Fred Astaire's affection. She was later revealed as Fred Astaire's favorite dance partner. He noted that Rita was a natural. She's constantly surprising me. Nothing is too difficult for her. She watches, goes home, practices up, and the next day she's got it perfect. Rita trained intensely, usually leaving rehearsals exhausted and in tears, 
but loved working with the stair and called the two films she made with him the only jewels in my life. 1941 brought the famous Life magazine photo in which Rita posed on her bed in a lacy nightgown. The picture became the most circulated photo of a star in the history of Life magazine. It was incredibly popular among the American troops overseas. The photo rocked Rita even further into stardom, and she was loaned out to 20th Century Fox to work on an anthology film called Tales of Manhattan and a period musical titled My Gal Sal. This is one too many. We can cancel the others. This is the only important one. They tell me a lot of times people start out hating each other and end up this way. I, I wish you'd go. I have to get dressed. I have to go to the theater. You have an hour before you go to the theater. In My Gal Sal, her leading man was Victor Mature, a popular stage and screen actor during the 40s and 50s. Even though both Rita and Mature were married, they became involved, but proved to be a positive influence on each other. Mature would do everything he could to make Rita laugh, which is a welcome occurrence, and he treated her with respect. Before she finished filming My Gal Sal, Rita mustered up the courage to give Judson notice that their marriage was over. Judson responded by taking all of Rita's money and hiding it in bank accounts around town, as well as using an obscene letter written by Hayworth, which he was using to extort various sums. The letter was Rita's way of fighting back against Judson for making her sleep with various men to advance her career, but instead of helping her cause, it ended up backfiring. Any wrong move from her could completely destroy her reputation and contract with Columbia. Despite Rita successfully separating herself from Judson, he still had immense control over her as well as most of her earnings. Rita told the judge that she never had any fun. I was never permitted to make any decisions. From the first, he told me I couldn't do anything for myself. My personality crawled deeper and deeper into a shell. Rita's friend Hermes Pan said that she often called to come over for dinner since she had no means to buy food. Judson began stalking Rita, following her to and from different locations she would go to. Roz Rogers said that Rita wasn't sure of herself after that. It must have been very hard for her to function without somebody telling her what to do, so this came as her growing period. Rita went back to work for Columbia, reteaming with a stare for You Are Never Lovelier, a musical about an Argentinian dancer who thinks a penniless American is her secret admirer. A stare would play practical jokes on Rita to try to make her comfortable. One involved dipping his hands in ice water before performing a routine in which Rita wore a blouse tied at her midriff. World War II was in full force, and Rita's beau, Victor Mature, was sent off to join the service. She began doing her own part, working shifts at the Hollywood Canteen, visiting over 300 cities for a war bonds tour, and visiting military hospitals. During this period, she met her soon-to-be husband, actor and director Orson Welles. Wells was hot off the successes of his film Citizen Kane, which marked him the youngest person to write, direct, produce, and star in a film, and The Magnificent Ambersons. However, he was also well known for being incredibly difficult to work with, and his latest film, It's All True, was proving to be a sore spot between him and his studio, RKO. While shooting in Brazil, Wells saw the photo of Rita on her bed printed in life and said, when I come back, that's what I'm going to do. He became obsessive over the thought of meeting Rita, one of his friends even saying that one of the first things he wanted to do when he got back was to find her and marry her. Wells returned to the U.S. to work on Jane Eyre, and word got back to Rita about his plans of wedlock. She was not pleased. After they met at a party that Wells had arranged, her opinion still was not changed. 
Well said that. She wouldn't answer the phone. She wouldn't talk to me. Nothing. She was sick of being chased around by Hollywood guys, but I wouldn't give up. I really persevered with Rita. Finally, after five weeks of unanswered calls from Wells, Rita finally agreed to go on a date with him. They complained about the movie business. Orson recalled that Rita said she hated being a movie star. It was just work. She was just a laborer going to her job as she had from the age of 12. It wasn't attitude. It was absolutely genuine. She wanted to escape from Rita Hayworth. Rita was currently on suspension from Columbia since she refused to star in a film that Harry Cohn had wanted her to do. She spent much of her time with Wells and visiting him on set when he was working on a film or television episode. Her relationship with Victor Mature was officially over. She moved in with Wells and got rid of anything in her home that belonged to Mature. Wells' assistant, Shifra Haran, recalled that Rita was very happy in the beginning. He was lovely with her. He always treated her as if she understood everything. She didn't have much education, thanks to her father, and she was very aware of it. She wanted so to learn, to read, to listen. Wells acted as a new guiding father figure for Rita, and another one of Wells' assistants said that with Rita, when it came to the man in her life, she had to have all his attention. She suffered from immense separation anxiety and trust issues. Wells was one of the only people she had in her life to cling to. He began putting together a magic vaudeville show to perform for soldiers waiting to ship out called the Mercury Wonder Show and elected Rita to take part, as well as his good friends and frequent collaborators, Joseph Cotton and Agnes Moorhead. Tricks included Rita getting sawed in half by Wells and reading the soldiers' minds. The show began its previews in August 1943 and was a major success. Unfortunately, after the first performance was over, Rita was given legal papers that announced a lawsuit from her first husband, Eddie Judson. He demanded Rita pay him $10,000 he claimed she owed him from their original settlement. She decided to ask the court to negate the first settlement and ask Judson to give back what he had taken from her. While performing in the Mercury Wonder Show at night, Rita was working on her latest film, Cover Girl, by day. She played a woman who wins a contest to appear on the cover of Vanity Magazine, which ends up altering the relationships with those in her life. Her co-star was Gene Kelly, who had almost total control over the film. Cover Girl was Columbia's first Technicolor musical and became one of the most popular Hollywood musicals during World War II. While it made Kelly an even bigger star, it was only his sixth film, Rita had to quit performing in Mercury Wonder Show and devote all of her attention to the movie. Cohn threatened to sue Rita if she performed at opening night of the show, forcing her to drop out if she wanted to have a career. Columbia released a statement stating that between both projects, Rita would not deliver an A1 performance on either, and since we have millions tied up in her picture, which will eventually reach and entertain many hundreds more servicemen than Orson's opus ever will, she should devote all of her efforts to it. Hello! How do you do? My name is Rusty Parker, and you're Miss Jackson, aren't you? I've heard so much about you. I suppose you've noticed that I'm just so full of animation and everything is just impossible for me to sit still a minute. My grandmother used to say it's because my glands work right. I suppose you'd like to know about my experience. Oh, mercy, I've done ever so much, all kinds of things. I've been on more bottles, cold cures are my specialty. Uh, you know, sneezes and animated stuff and things like that. I have some photographs here if you'd like to see. No, I'd rather you wouldn't take them out if you don't mind. I don't feel up to capturing them if they should get loose. I think there's something you can take. I'd find out about it if I were you. Take? For what? Those glands. They're going to turn on you one of these days. Wells replaced Rita in the show with Marlena Dietrich, which came as a blow to Rita's self-esteem. 
Wells decided his best option to prove to Rita that he was there for her was to ask her to marry him. They wed on September 7, 1943 at the Bay City Building in Santa Monica. Rita promptly returned to the set of CoverGirl after the ceremony, ecstatic at the prospect of what her future would hold. When Harry Cohn heard the news, he was outraged. So was Rita's first husband, Eddie Judson, who was still demanding that Rita owed him money. He claimed in court that Rita believes that because she is a motion picture performer that she is above the law and above the courts, and that the legal rights of others are secondary to her wishes or convenience. The court sided with Rita. After the Mercury Wonder Show ended on September 9th, Wells began pursuing a career in politics. He felt it would be a better fit to his strengths than Hollywood, and that it would be a way for Rita to escape the business. However, it proved to be more stressful for Rita than helpful, as she was placed even more under the scrutiny of the public, and people often came to Wells' speeches to see her, not listen to her husband. Several people along the trail noticed that Wells often mistreated Rita in public and wondered why they had ever gotten married. Wells decided he needed to direct one more film, an adaptation of War and Peace, so that he could make enough money to sustain him and Rita's new life. Rita was also hired by Columbia to make Tonight and Every Night, a musical set in London during the Blitz. She was two months pregnant with Wells' child when filming started and completely ecstatic about the news. Wells was much less so. He was scheduled to campaign on behalf of FDR's re-election and would have to leave a very pregnant Rita behind. Wells' assistant, Shifra Haran, said that she thought he left her as far as he was capable. You had to give him that limitation. He had to have his freedom now to go away. She didn't like it one damn bit. She always had to be happy. She always had to have that assurance that somebody loved her. Rita had very good reason to be worried about Wells leaving her behind. While she was lying around at home and seven months pregnant, he was spotted having dinner with several other women. Wells returned home with dreams of becoming president and Rita the first lady, but her main concern was the impending birth of her child. On December 17, 1944, Rebecca Wells was born. Orson was invited to the White House inauguration luncheon and left Rita and Becky behind. Shifra Haran said that she didn't think Mr. Wells ever paid any attention to his daughter. He even told columnist Hedda Hopper in Rita and Rebecca's presence, What a bore, this domesticity. To make matters worse, Rita's mother Volga unexpectedly passed away. Even though Rita hadn't spent much time with her parents after leaving the home at 18, she was at her mother's bedside when she died. Wells went off to work on another movie, Tomorrow is Forever, despite telling Rita that he was ready to get into politics full-time. He claimed that he needed to make one movie a year until he actually began making an earning from his political endeavors. Throughout 1945, Wells began partaking in several affairs with other women right under Rita's nose. He was disappointed with how emotional Rita had become as a result of his lies and empty promises. Their marriage began to fall apart and the two moved on to different projects. Wells with The Stranger, and Rita with Gilda, the movie she would forever be associated with. Gilda was crafted specifically for Rita by Virginia Van Up, who was one of the most influential women in Hollywood during the 1940s. She had also written the script for Cover Girl. Star Gene Kelly had quipped, You write just like a man, to which Van Up responded, Writers of either sex are writers. They have to know people. Rita and Van Up became close friends on the set of CoverGirl, and it was important for Rita to have someone within the industry that she could trust, especially another woman. Rita also built another important relationship during the filming of Gilda with her co-star, Glenn Ford. The two had previously appeared in 1940's The Lady in Question, but it was during Gilda when the two bonded. 
Rita and I were very fond of one another. We became very close friends, and I guess it all came out on screen, Ford said. His son Peter later said that the two had had a decades-long affair. While it was never confirmed by the two, their having a relationship was probable. Harry Cohn was incensed by Rita and Ford spending so much time together, so he bugged their dressing rooms. Ford recalled that they knew about it and decided to play with Cohn. In his microphone, we rehearsed a scene that we could never do in the film. I started to growl. Ah, Rita, let's go, my love. It comes with everything. And Rita said, come on, my love, repeating a phrase from Gilda's song, Amada Mio. Love me forever and leave it forever today. Harry never noticed the joke, and sometimes we had to run out of the dressing room because we couldn't contain the laughter. The iconic black satin strapless dress that Rita wore when performing her Put the Blame on Name number was inspired by the Jean Singer Sargent painting Madame X. Jean-Louis, the costume designer who created it, said that inside there was a harness like you put on a horse. Then we molded plastic, softened over a gas flame, and shaped around the top of the dress. No matter how Rita moved, the dress did not fall down. Well, something which intrigues me greatly, though, is that uh, in that in that kind of year, which is what 1946, 1948, how did how did ladies' dresses stay up on their own? You mean the dress that I was doing put the blame on name? In. How did how did? Yeah. Well. Well. <laughs> For two good reasons, it stayed up. That's the story that went around, but here's the real down. Put the blame on name, boy. Put the blame on name. One night she started to shim and shake. That brought on the Frisco quake, so you can put the blame on name. The character of Gilda couldn't be any more unlike Rita. Columbia executive Joni Tapps said, Rita never considered herself or tried to be a sex symbol. The movie acted as a double-edged sword for Rita. It was her biggest box office draw, but also forever entwined her real-life personality with Gilda. In perhaps her most famous quote, she once said that, Men fell in love with Gilda, but they woke up with me. Wells owed his latest directorial effort, The Stranger, to Rita, who had put her career on the line for her difficult-to-work-with husband. International Pictures, which was producing the film, required that Rita co-sign Wells' contract so that if he didn't complete the film, she would have to pay any money already spent on production. To make matters worse, Wells already owed her around $30,000 that he had borrowed from her for his various projects and affairs. He continued to see other women whilst working on The Stranger, even renting out an apartment on the MGM lot specifically for his trysts. Rita was often left home alone at night. Still, she would visit him on the set in hopes of convincing him to return home to her and their child, but he would not do so. Wells flew to New York directly after he wrapped shooting on The Stranger to discuss plans to appear in a stage production of, to appear in a stage production of Around the World in 80 Days. He'd given up his aspiration of politics, deciding it was not the right fit. When he returned home, Rita presented him with a divorce. Wells said that he could have patched it up in a day, but I have reached the end of my capacity to feel such total failure with her. In Rita's words, it's hard to live life with a genius. Rita and Wells agreed to relinquish her interests in The Stranger in exchange for half of the profits he earned from performing in Around the World in 80 Days. 
Rita also wanted Wells to provide for her and Rebecca if they ever needed help, which theoretically would not have made sense after her smash success of Gilda, but Rita found herself without any film offers. Finally, she got the lead role in Down to Earth, a film she later said was her worst. Rita played Terpsichore, the goddess of song and dance, who was sent to Earth to help a playwright with his show. Wait until you hear what's happening on Earth. A mortal, Daniel Miller, is presenting a musical play about us. The Nine Muses. What's disgraceful about that? We've been glorified in song and story for centuries. Shakespeare, Walt Whitman, Robert Burns. But this barbarian isn't Shakespeare, Whitman, or Burns. Why? He's betraying us in a low and vulgar manner on a public stage. <gasps> and according to him, I'm nothing but a man chasing Trump. Oh, no. Oh, yes. And as for the rest of you, he says you've kissed over three million men. <gasps> Imagine that. How vile. scandalous. We haven't kissed a man in over 2,000 years. Except Apollo, once. And you should hear the type of song he's using. For instance, take a chick like me. They call me Terpsichore. I'm the goddess of song and dance. I put the ants in the dancer's pants. Oh, no! Rita was also being propositioned by Wells to appear in one of his films, which he later recalled went like this. In the course of talking me into having her in the movie, she talked me into moving in, and that's what brought us back together. Around this time, she learned that a photo of her in costume as Gilda had been pasted onto an atomic bomb that was dropped on Bikini Atoll during a test in 1946. Rita was horrified and thought it was a publicity stunt put together by Harry Cohn. She decided to get back at him by announcing that she and Wells were back together, which of course worked in her favor. The recently reunited Mr. and Mrs. Wells began working on their next film, The Lady from Shanghai. The film was part of a deal Wells had made with Harry Cohn. In exchange for Cohn financing his Around the World in 80 Days production, Wells would write, produce, and direct a movie for free. Wells also starred as the lead, an Irish sailor named Michael who rescues a woman, played by Rita. Her character's husband hires Michael to be a crew member on his yacht, and things start to go awry when truths are revealed. Wells had Rita cut her long red hair into an extremely short, dyed blonde look that completely transformed her appearance. Artist Maurice Bessie described this transformation as the execution of Rita Hayworth. Cohn was horrified at this decision as Rita's hair served as an offshoot of her entire screen personality. Rita recalled that Orson was trying something new with me, but Harry Cohn wanted the image, the image he was going to make me till I was 90. There was nothing Cohn could do about it and filming began in October of 1946. Rita's good friend and trusted makeup artist Bob Schiffer had just returned from serving in the war and was back working with his favorite client. However, Wells was not as fond of Schiffer as Rita was. Schiffer recalled that whenever Rita needed a touch-up, Wells would bellow makeup, expecting Schiffer to rush over immediately. He disliked this immensely and would taunt Wells by taking as long as possible to make his way over to Rita. The more he would yell, the slower I walked. He explained to Wells, I've been running for the last three and a half years. No one is ever going to tell me to run again. Schiffer was promptly fired, causing Rita to not show up on set the next day in an act of defiance. She told the production manager at Columbia that she refused to work unless Schiffer was rehired. Wells would do no such thing, causing Rita to have Schiffer do her makeup in secret. This worked perfectly fine until the cast and crew were required to start filming in Mexico. Columbia decided to send Schiffer on the plane with the Wellses and assured him that everything would be fine. He soon found out that the pilot of the plane was one of his old war buddies, who had to leave the cockpit and left the plane on autopilot. When they hit a rough patch of turbulence, Wells went up to see what was going on, 
only to find Schiffer sitting alone in the cockpit. He ran down the aisle screaming that Schiffer had hijacked the plane and was planning to kill them all as revenge for being fired. Things were ultimately smoothed over, but this entire ordeal presented the immense lack of communication and trust that Rita and Orson had with one another. One of their friends said the couple was cute together, but they were not lovers. They were polite. They weren't rotten to each other, but it was definitely on the wane. Biographer Adrian McLean wrote that Rita was often blamed for filming not going well as a result of being ill and skipping several days of work, when in reality, she was rarely ill or absent during production, but she had walked off the set one day. It likely had to do with her being fed up with Wells' actions as director, his public indiscretions with other women, and his erratic production methods. McLean noted that it was strange that from Wells' point of view, illness was a better cover than the truth, that Hayworth had walked off the set. While we'll never know what really happened that day, McLean's discoveries present that with the lady from Shanghai, Wells was actually the one who caused most production issues. She learned that there were frequent instances in which he didn't even show up to set, where he'd spend entire days setting up shots that he knew wouldn't even work. But in the Orson Welles collection, a set of memos, notes, and other archival materials about Welles' life and career, all of the blame points to Rita. Wells himself even reinstated this in a 1992 interview with director Peter Bogdanovich, who said, I found that the delays in shooting hadn't anything to do with you. Most of them were caused by Rita Hayworth. To which Wells responded, I'd forgotten about that. Yes. This was a common occurrence in Rita's career as an actor. Since she was a big movie star, she was frequently the one to be blamed for things going wrong. In reality, she was one of the most professional actors of the time. The Lady from Shanghai was one of the first Hollywood productions to be shot almost entirely on location, including sites like Acapulco and San Francisco. Despite the naturalism of the movie, many problems occurred during shooting. Crocodiles were often present in the water and poisonous bugs swarmed the set, one even giving Orson Welles an infection on his eyelid that caused it to swell and seal shut. Errol Flynn, whose yacht was being used as a set piece, would randomly disappear for long periods of time, leaving no place for those scenes to be shot. Rumor has it that when an assistant cameraman dropped dead of a heart attack, Flynn attempted to put him in a duffel bag and throw him into the sea before Wells stopped him. Safe to say, the shoot was filled with many roadblocks, but filming finally ended in March of 1947. But the worries weren't over, as Cohn disliked Wells' final product and ordered him to shoot retakes, causing the film to go a third over its budget. Cohn hired editor Viola Lawrence to cut out about an hour of total footage, which completely altered Wells' vision of the movie. The most egregious offense was trimming the final fun half sequence down from 20 minutes to a little less than three minutes total, in which Wells had displayed his signature risk-taking styles of set design and editing choices. Why don't you try to understand? George was supposed to take care of Arthur, but he lost his silly head and shot Broom. After that, I knew I couldn't trust him. He was mad. He had to be shot. And what about me? We could have got off together. Into the sunrise. You and me, or you and Grisby. I love you. One who follows his nature keeps his original nature in the end. But haven't you heard ever of something better to follow? No. The movie was released a year later than its original completion and bombed at the box office, but has since become a cult classic. 
Bosley Crowther of the New York Times wrote that the film was a thoroughly confused and baffling thing. Tension is recklessly permitted to drain off in a sieve of tangled plot in a lengthy courtroom argument, which has little, save a few visual stunts. As producer of the picture, Mr. Wells might better have fired himself, as author that is, and hired somebody to give Mr. Wells, director, a better script. The Wells' relationship began to crumble once they returned home, though it had already been rocky during filming, with tense relations between Orson and Rita, as well as the difficult filming conditions. The ultimate test came when Rita was sent a letter detailing a requirement of $2,000 or else your baby will be snatched from your home and your beautiful face will be ruined by having lie thrown into those beautiful eyes of yours. Thankfully, the perpetrator had already been detained by the FBI by the time Rita received the letter. Wells had fled to Santa Monica, leaving Rita and Rebecca alone. This was the nail in the coffin for Rita. She filed for a divorce in early 1947. During the divorce proceedings, she said, Mr. Wells showed no interest in establishing a home. Mr. Wells told me he should have never married me in the first place, as it interfered with his freedom and his way of life. To get her mind off of things, Rita went to take a trip to Europe. Harry Cohn decided that since he had Rita back in his control and could not use her in films until her hair grew back, he would allow this vacation, and even paid for the trip. When she returned, she began working on her next project, The Loves of Carmen. There's nothing so good to the taste as a thing that's been worn by the Spanish sun. Huh? Well, not only is he beautiful, but music comes out of him. It's just a watch. It chimes. Ah, oh, too bad. I thought for a minute you had wonderful possibilities. It's just a watch. See? Too bad. But maybe we can be friends anyway. Would you like a bite of my orange, little soldier? Thank you. On the second thought, perhaps it would not be proper. After all, we haven't been introduced. I'm Jose Lizardo Bengoa. Just arrived in Seville, senorita. Senorita? <laughs> Me? <laughs> you have just arrived in Seville. The film was the first she made under her new production company, Bethwork Corporation which ensured she would receive 25% of the net profits from her films, as well as script approval. Rita was often incredibly shy and preferred to sit with the crew and watch them set everything up for a shot, rather than chat with her castmates. But it appeared as though she was even more isolated on the set of The Loves of Carmen. Her longtime stand-in, Grace Godino, said that Rita had the ability to kind of blank out. On the busiest set, she could just sit there and block it out, like none of it was happening. She would sit there quietly and no one would disturb her. Offset, Rita got along well with those she was familiar with. The assistant director of the film, Earl Bellamy, said that when shooting was over for the day, he, Rita, and Bob Schiffer would go to her house and have drinks. We'd just sit around the bar. She'd get in the back of the bar and pour the drinks. You'd have to watch her because she would get a little on the strong side, and the first thing you knew, you were having a little problem getting out the front door. During this period, Rita began secretly dating Howard Hughes, a well-known tyrant amongst Hollywood circles. He was an obsessive womanizer, but committed businessman who had directed and produced films such as the infamous Hell's Angels and Howard Hawks' Scarface. In due time, he would end up becoming head of RKO Studios. Hughes was just intended to be a fling, but Rita ended up getting pregnant. Peter Ford, the son of Rita's Loves of Carmen co-star, claimed that his father had been the one to get Rita pregnant. Either way, Rita was pregnant, not looking to get married, and ultimately decided to get an abortion in France. She ended up suffering complications and began hemorrhaging. 
Harry Cohn certainly would not allow news of Rita's abortion to be public and created a false story that she was in the hospital because of anemia. Orson Welles's past assistant, Shifra Haran, had now become Rita's assistant and closest confidant. Haran said that she stayed with Miss Hayworth most of the day in case she wanted something and so that she wouldn't be absolutely alone. She also said that the whole hospital just waited on her hand and foot. They just adored her. She was like a queen there, although she never put on any airs and never asked for anything. Rita was most worried about any members of the press sneaking into the hospital, and her fears were realized when a reporter somehow made it into her room and started a widespread commotion over Rita's condition. Even in her most private and personal moments, Rita was never given a moment's peace. In a couple of weeks' time, she had mostly recovered and was invited to appear at a charity ball at the Eiffel Tower, where she was spotted by future pursuer Prince Ali Khan. Khan was currently married, but felt he had to have Rita for himself. Shifra Haran said that the prince was immediately smitten, but Miss Hayworth was not. He'd been obsessed with her ever since watching Blood and Sand, and was delighted that Rita was willing to spend time with him after the two had met at the Eiffel Tower Ball. While they spent more and more time with each other, Rita was put off by his playboy status and didn't feel she was ready to be in a relationship at the moment, at least not one that couldn't guarantee her a trustworthy partner and possibility for marriage and family. Finally, Rita had had enough and decided to flee Cap d'Antibes without Khan's knowledge, heading for Berlieu-sur-Mer. She decided to stay there until Khan gave up his obsession with her and she could move on. While at dinner with some friends, Rita was approached by a woman who said she needed to tell Rita what her future would hold. She predicted that Rita was about to embark on the greatest romance of her life. He was someone she already knew, but whose overture she had foolishly resisted. Rita must relent and give in to him totally. Only if she did that would she find happiness. While it will never be known if Ali Khan had been the one to send the woman to tell Rita this future, it caused her to change her mind and return to Cap d'Antibes and move in with the prince. In the press, Rita was accused of returning to Khan because of his large sums of wealth, but Shifra Haran denied this. She didn't care about fancy clothes or jewels. To her, the prince was just a big brown-eyed guy. She responded to all the attention he gave her, not things. She just wanted someone to love her, and her alone. Unfortunately, Khan was not the man for the job, as he was a known womanizer and enjoyed throwing parties over spending time with Rita. In fact, on the very night she moved in, he had arranged a party with many high society guests, whom Rita did not know and felt inferior to. Haran said that it was too overwhelming for her. She wasn't the great hostess who could receive people. That just wasn't her personality. In his way of making up for things, Khan invited Rita on a trip to Spain, where she was constantly harassed by the press and swarmed by mobs of people who pushed her around haphazardly. When Rita and Khan returned to his home in Cannes, Rita decided it was best to go back to her work and daughter in California as the summer came to a close. As soon as she'd returned, incessant phone calls from Khan were commonplace, begging her to come back to him. Before going to Europe four months earlier, Harry Cohn had signed Rita up for Lona Hansen, a western in which she would be co-starring with William Holden. When she reported to Columbia after her vacation, she found that the script was nowhere near finished. Her Beckworth contract allowed her script approval before she decided whether or not to work on a project. But with no script, Cohn decided Rita would agree to do the project whether she wanted to or not. With Rita ignoring Khan's calls, he had gotten a hold of her secretary and persuaded her to convince Rita to let him visit her in California. Rita relented and secured him a home across from hers in Brentwood. The two began their relationship back up again, and Rita was delighted to see how quickly Khan adjusted to becoming a father figure to her daughter, Rebecca. 
The fact that Rita was seeing a married man gave Harry Cohn even more ammo to fight with, and the couple decided to fight back by taking a spur-of-the-moment trip to Mexico. There, they were once again plagued by members of the press, and Rita's fears of neglect began to resurface whenever Cohn left her alone in their hotel. Oddly, Rita's paranoia seemed to delight the prince, and he often tried to agitate her. When the two returned to the United States, Rita was to report to Set for Lona Hansen, but she still hadn't seen any hint of a script. Rita issued a public statement that read, The statement that I had refused to report to work is not correct. I reported to work on September 12th, but no script was ready for me. A script was handed to me last Thursday. The part to be portrayed by me in the script is not adapted to me and was detrimental. I so stated this to the company and they suspended me. Shifra Haran said, She wasn't like Betty Davis, who you can see fighting back. She wasn't that way at all. For Rita to turn down a film was a once-in-a-lifetime occurrence, and it seemed rather unjust for Columbia to suspend their top-earning star over one movie, especially when Rita had worked dutifully and without complaint for over a decade. Later in her life, the ever-respectful Rita finally spoke her mind about Cohn, saying, Harry Cohn thought of me as one of the people he could exploit and make a lot of money, and I did make a lot of money for him, but not much for me. You want to know what I think of Harry Cohn? He was a monster. She turned to the attention of Ali Khan, who was head over heels for her beauty and fame, as he later said. He convinced her and Rebecca to move in with him in his home in Cannes and leave Hollywood behind. Their first stop was New York City, where they would be living at the Plaza for a while. Orson Welles's past secretary, Elizabeth Rubino, was hired to look after Rebecca, whom she said was very opinionated for her age, definitely Orson Welles's daughter. In December 1948, everyone was set to travel on Conn's ship, the Britannic, for his stud farm in Ireland. Conn resumed his extravagant parties, which Rita still did not feel she fit into. Shifra Haran said, The affair with the prince may have been a passionate thing for a month or two, but it was ill-conceived from the beginning. Their worlds were too far apart. Conn was upset with Rita's meek attempts to join in the parties and interact with his guests, but did not try very hard to make any attempt at understanding why she was so shy and uncomfortable. Khan quickly moved Rita and Rebecca to Paris, where they were hounded by reporters at the airport to board Khan's plane. Throughout her entire life, Rita had severe anxiety about flying, and the claustrophobia of the shouting reporters and bright flash of cameras did nothing to ease her fears. Rita's future co-star, Frank Langella, said, If you saw a photograph of a woman getting off of an airplane with Ali Khan, one of the richest men in the world, coming down some steps and people flinging flowers at her feet and her dress being kissed and everybody backing away. The impression most of us would get is, isn't that great? Isn't that a wonderful life? When in fact, what's going through that person's mind is, when am I going to get in the car? When am I going to get away from this? This is embarrassing me or angering me or frightening me, more likely frightening for Rita. She told me that she didn't like to go, as to quote her, I didn't want to go no place where they kissed the hem of my dress. It didn't help that many members of the press were upset about Rita having an affair with a married man, let alone a prince. The Sunday pictorial even went so far as to write, How would you describe a friendship in which a divorced woman careens across two continents with a married man? Miss Hayworth continues to drag around her four-year-old daughter on this vulgar joyride. Khan's father, the Aga Khan, wanted to put a stop to the negative press and told Ali that he must either break up with Rita or marry her. Rita agreed to go with Khan to visit his father and ask for his approval for marriage. To the couple's relief, he liked Rita and fully supported their getting married. 
Ali Khan's wife, Joan Yard Bowler, began divorce proceedings, claiming that Khan had shown lack of consideration to her during their marriage. She did not mention Rita in the divorce petition, which meant Rita was in the clear and the separation went smoothly. In March of 1949, Rita learned she was pregnant, meaning the wedding ceremony would have to be set as soon as possible for the fear of scandal. Even with the date set for May, Khan was often seen out in nightclubs with other women. Orson Welles said she was marrying the most promiscuous man in Europe. Just the worst marriage that ever could have happened, and she knew it. It seemed that Rita herself was having misgivings, even inviting Wells to meet with her and attempt to win him back. Wells, who is currently in a relationship, decided it was not best for them to get back together. French law required that all weddings be held in public, which was the last thing Rita wanted. Khan asked the French Ministry of Justice if the ceremony could be private, but to no avail. A day before the wedding, Khan set up a screening of The Loves of Carmen, which greatly depressed Rita. As biographer Barbara Leeming wrote, the screening represented that the prince saw himself as marrying a movie star. He was enraptured by precisely the image of herself from which Rita longed more than anything to escape. The wedding was held on May 27, 1949. Rita wore a custom icy blue chiffon dress designed by Jacques Faith, by Jacques Faith, and a floppy picture hat. Journalists gathered in the back of the room where they promised not to be disruptive. The mayor gave a speech in which he said, I wish with all my heart and a sincere hope that after the feverish days you have been experiencing, that you may find in this oasis the happiness that you desire. Prince, princess, our dearest wish is that you may be happy in our community. Rita was the first movie star to become a princess. Margarita Cancino, better known as Rita Hayworth, became the wife of Ali Khan. Outside, the waiting crowds gave an extremely hearty greeting to the couple who brought such fame to their village and who are now on their way to a lavish reception at the nearby chateau. A family party on a princely scale and a group picture that was to be followed by many more. Even a stroll by the scented swimming pool was turned into music while you walk. And even after the publicity army had done its worst, the wedding smile still reflected the glitter of their day. The next day, Rita and Ali were married by two Muslim priests, as they had promised the Aga Khan that they would legitimize their relationship under the Khan's religion. The Vatican was displeased with Rita, a Roman Catholic, for marrying outside of the church. The Canberra Times wrote that a spokesman for the Vatican said, The church never gave permission for a marriage. The offsprings can still be baptized as Catholics, but that will not wipe out the sin of their Catholic mother. Since Rita was now officially a princess, Khan set to work on getting her the finest teachers for learning several languages, as well as royal etiquette and protocol. He took her to an endless string of public events, two of which she fainted in the middle of a crowd. Just like Wells had during his marriage to Rita, Ali had several affairs with while his wife was at home and pregnant. She finally announced in August 1949 that she would be due next February, when in reality the baby was set to be born in December. The Khans decided that they would announce the child was born prematurely. Princess Yasmin Aga Khan was born in Switzerland on December 28, 1949. The Khans were now living in a rented chalet, which proved to be three months of bliss for Rita, who was finally spending time with her husband and beloved daughters in peace. Unfortunately, Ali wanted to go back to his home in Cannes. Their old problems and Khans' infidelities rose back to the surface. 
Rita had had enough of Allie's endless parties, women, and an apparent lack of contentment he had with his married life, and she desired to go back to America. They would often have heated arguments that ended with Rita breaking down into tears. For unexplained reasons, Khan seemed most pleased to watch Rita become hysterical. Khan was required to fulfill several duties as a prince, including meeting with important figures in Ismaili communities, but promised Rita that he would take her on romantic safari after his work was done. Rita was miserable, finding that Khan paid attention to every single person whom they encountered on their trip, except for her. Some days he disappeared and didn't return until late at night. Khan suggested that Rita return to Hollywood and start making movies again, which she had no interest in. His incessant pushing was most likely because he was running out of money and needed some sort of income to pay for his gambling and partying habits. Even though he was a prince, Ali Khan's funds were under the grasp of his father. Rita's friend Hermes Pan said that Ali Khan spent her money like water. He spent practically a fortune of hers. Rita decided she had had enough when the Khans had reached their stop in Nairobi. Leaving a note for Ali, she flew to Cannes to pick up her things and her daughters and set sail for New York in March of 1951. They arrived in April and were met by the press, whom she told. I'm thrilled to be back home again. And I'm most grateful for the very warm reception that you all have given me. And, of course, I'm most anxious for my children to see America. And, you know, the first thing I'm going to do is to go out and get a hot dog. I can't wait. While Harry Cohn was eager for Rita to return to work for him, Ali Khan seemed virtually unbothered that Rita had disappeared. As soon as he arrived back in Cannes from Africa, he was publicly photographed with multiple women and told the press he was in no rush to reunite with his wife. In late April, Rita began the process of one of the longest divorces in Hollywood history. Rita was also experiencing troubles with her daughters, especially Princess Yasmin, who was the target of a fierce custody battle between her parents, as well as the target for several people who meant to kidnap her or cause her harm in exchange for money. Rita and her daughters moved to Nevada, where they were kept safe by armed guards who surrounded the premises. Bob Schiffer said, Rita was pretty lonely then and tremendously lost. She didn't know what to do with her life or what direction to go in. She didn't know whether to resume her career or whether she even had a career. Rita was set to make her big comeback in Hollywood after being away for four years with a fair in Trinidad. She refused to do the film since, just like with her last failed picture, there was no script for her to read through, but Harry Cohn was pressuring her to do it anyway. He promptly suspended her, despite having his own doubts about the quality of the film. Rita decided that she would ask Cohn to free her from her Columbia contract if she agreed to do one last movie for him. He took the matter to the press, claiming that Rita owed him $800,000 invested in properties in which she has failed to appear. Rita felt it was in her best interest to not argue and go ahead and star in the movie. Rita became close friends with choreographer Valerie Bettis, one of the only female choreographers working in Hollywood at the time. Bettis said that every day there was a major crisis, but Rita and I won all our battles, and of course that gave us great satisfaction. These battles against Harry Cohn included getting the costumes, script, and musical numbers just the way they wanted them to be. Bettis added that Rita was the most cooperative artist with whom I have ever been closely associated. She worked with Rita to choreograph routines for two numbers, Trinidad Lady and I've Been Kissed Before. Bettis told a magazine that, Hollywood has had the wrong concept of sex for years. They think that the way you suggest sex is to put on a costume. 
but that's not my way of doing it. I use the personal qualities of Hayworth in dance terms. This is Hayworth as Hayworth really is. She told another interviewer that sensuality is a state of being. You sensualize any moment by being sensual. Director Vincent Sherman said that when he saw Rita perform the numbers, it was like you'd plugged her in. She hadn't been alive before. Now she was electric. She felt comfortable, confident when she was dancing. Lady. It's only that I do what I love. I love what I do. Can't help the mad desire that's deep inside of you. You realize the fault isn't mine, that you are to blame. You want what you can't have, and you're all the same. It's dangerous to resume with the Trinidad lady. Chaka one more, it's to make you never hide. The one you dreamed of with the lady from Trinidad. Bob Schiffer said that during this period, Rita seemed to drift in and out of men. It was a need. She was seen out and about town with actors such as Kirk Douglas. Vincent Sherman said, I think the thing that I remember uh, particularly about her was one night, uh, I was having dinner with her and the writer, and the writer left uh, early, went back to the office to work. I promised to join him a little later, and uh, we talked. She told me a little bit about uh, experience with living with Ali, when she was married to Ali Khan, etc. And uh, at one point, after about a half hour, I said, Rita, I'd like to talk to you more, but I'd better get back to the office and help Jimmy on the script. And she looked at me and said, you're bored with me, aren't you? And I said, no, no, of course not. And she said, yeah, she said, I know. She said, I can always get a man, but I can't keep him. After Princess Yasmin accidentally swallowed the contents of a box of sleeping pills and was rushed to the hospital to get her stomach pumped, Ali Khan rushed to Rita's side and the relationship was renewed by the recent scare. Rita decided to drop the divorce proceedings and went back to Europe with her husband. When she got there, Khan was throwing yet another one of his parties and she ended up spending the night all by herself. Things hadn't seemed to change for Ali's destructive habits, even causing his father to ask, can't he at least keep away from the blondes and brunettes while Rita is here? Rita quickly realized that Khan had only wanted a public reconciliation to put his name in good terms with the press. She moved out and once again wanted to go through with the divorce. She told her lawyer that Khan is a playboy while I work all year around in Hollywood. When I come to Paris, it isn't to live in a house where there are 80 friends of all kinds coming and going, and it is not to dine in Maxime's. I don't leave Hollywood to be photographed. She was also concerned about her daughter Yasmin, whom she wanted complete custody over. The judge granted her this, with Khan given, given visitation rights. Almost as soon as things were over with Ali Khan, Rita became involved with singer and actor Dick Hames, who had a severe gambling problem by the time he met Rita. She was working on her latest film, Miss Sadie Thompson, about a woman who finds herself stranded on an island with a dangerous minister. Joni Tapps, executive assistant to Harry Cohn, had invited Rita to lunch, where they ran across Hames. Tapps had just worked with him on cruising down the river and thought he would make a good match for Rita. After dancing at the premiere of Rita's latest movie, Salome, the two became involved. Rita had to be separated from Hames 
when filming for Miss Sadie Thompson took her to Hawaii, but he ended up following her there using a singing gig as his reasoning. When Rita and Hames returned to California, Hames was pulled aside by the Office of the Immigration and Naturalization Service to prove his citizenship in the United States. In 1953, Hawaii was not yet a state, and Hames, who was born in Argentina, was not technically a citizen. His return to America alerted the authorities, and he was threatened with deportation in a matter of 60 days. Hames quickly schemed to use Rita's star power to save him from deportation. Throughout 1953, he paraded her around New York City in various nightclubs and restaurants to garner as much positive publicity as possible. This caused the Immigration and Naturalization Service to make the decision to arrest Hames immediately. Before they could do so, Rita and Hames had already flown to California, but Hames was quickly caught by federal agents while out driving on Sunset Boulevard. A hearing would take place in two weeks, giving Hames enough time to go ahead with his scheduled performances in Las Vegas. Rita was finishing up Miss Sadie Thompson and suffering from extreme stress and anxiety due to Hames' issues and the fact that Ali Khan was dragging his heels at paying her money for child support. Hames's deportation hearing did not go smoothly, but he told the examiner he was planning to marry Rita, which slightly put their minds at ease. But first he had to divorce his third wife, Nora Eddington. Rita felt getting married was the best way to solve Hames's deportation troubles, telling the press, I'm not leaving Las Vegas until Dick and I are married. Princess Yasmin received yet another threat, this one telling Rita that she must be returned to Ali Khan or else killed. After announcing her plans to marry Hames, a second letter from the same address read, If you marry Dick Hames, your little girl Yasmin will be killed, and if you don't want this to happen, then you had better go back to Ali Khan. Rita was in the midst of a battle with Khan over what religion Yasmin should be raised under. Rita wanted her daughter to be Catholic, and Khan demanded she be Muslim. For some reason, this was the main sticking point throughout their divorce and custody battles, all the way up to Khan's premature death in a 1960 car crash. Columnist Sheila Graham wrote in a 1953 article for Modern Screen Magazine, Let us never forget that in Muslim tradition, a woman counts for nothing except to bear sons for the glory of Allah. You can bet that Rita will bear Yasmin for the glory of the little girl's happiness, whatever the religion. She's a good mother in spite of her frenzied and pathetic nonstop search for the perfect romance, which has in the past taken her away from her children very frequently when she'd rather be with them. The FBI sent out a full-scale investigation into finding the source of the threat letters that had come from New Rochelle, New York. Instead of keeping a low profile, Rita posed with her daughters for several publications and talked often with the press about her dedication to Hames. His divorce from his wife was said to come through on September 23rd, and the wedding to Rita was scheduled for the very next day. Even though Rita said she wanted a simple wedding, this one is too important to me to clutter up with a lot of unnecessary frills. It's enough that we love each other and we're finally getting married after so many difficulties. Hames had other plans. He wanted the wedding to be as publicized as possible, holding it in the Sands Hotel in Las Vegas and inviting as many members of the press as he could. Before the ceremony, Hames, Rita, and her two daughters were photographed, interviewed, and jostled about by hundreds of people. A strange decision given that Rita and Yasmin's lives were still very much in danger. After the wedding, Hames flew to Philadelphia to perform for 10 days, and Rita and her daughters went to a 14-room house Hames's mother had rented for them in Connecticut. What was meant to be Hames's big comeback concert ended up putting him even further in debt, as any of the money he made was snatched up by the IRS to pay for the taxes he owed. 
he decided he needed Rita to come along with him on a nationwide tour to fully gain a profit back, plus get the publicity he so desperately craved. Rita left her young daughters behind to go with Haynes on his tour. It was a necessity for their family, as they had barely any money. Dick Haynes was her one and only, and he had her wrapped around his thumb. Biographer Adrian McLean wrote that, Many middle-class women in the 1940s and 1950s had internalized a very similar message. Among the most common dilemmas faced is that their husbands came first, as well as demanded the most, and therefore those wives could not properly maintain allegiance to friends, family, and work. One night on the tour at the Hotel Madison in New York City, Hames was approached by two was approached by two sheriff's deputies who told him he was to be arrested. His second wife, actress Joanne Drew, demanded he must pay her the $33,000 that he owed her. They'd made an agreement that he give her 10% of his nightclub earnings until she received all of the money, which he had been unable to do. Haynes was so hysterical that he locked himself and Rita in their hotel room, where they stayed for 24 hours. Haynes' lawyer and Drew's lawyer ended up coming to an agreement, and Haynes and Rita continued with the tour. While traveling around the country, Rita and Hames had left her daughters in the care of a babysitter named Mrs. Chambers in a house that Hames had rented. The owner had warned him to pay the rent for the house or else its inhabitants would be kicked out. The time had passed and a deputy sheriff arrived to escort the family off the premises. Mrs. Chambers took the girls to her home in White Plains, New York, which was extremely untidy and unfit for children to live in. A reporter ended up making his way to the house to talk to the girls about their current living situation. Rebecca and Yasmin, who were merely children, were exploited by the reporter who took photographs of the dilapidated house and revealed to the world that Rita Hayworth's children were left unminded in what was virtually a dump. All of Rita's attempts to save her husband had failed, and she was worse off than when she had started. However, news soon emerged that Haynes' lawyer found out that the Immigration and Naturalization Service had specifically decided not to warn Haynes that he would be subjected to deportation if he left for Hawaii. This discovery allowed him to put forth an investigation into the case, and he could remain in the United States. Caseworkers had been sent to Mrs. Chambers' home by a couple of neighbors, and a neglect petition was filed. Rebecca and Yasmin were set to be the subject of a hearing and became the newest sensation in the press. Rita was distraught, and as biographer Barbara Leeming wrote, the fact that Rita could have allowed herself and her children to be placed in such a position suggests how wildly out of control her life with Dick had spun. News spread to Orson Welles, who was in Europe working on a film. Despite the fact that he had never paid any attention to his daughter, he still wanted to support Rita and told his lawyer to do whatever he could to put her name in a good light. Unfortunately for Rita, this situation was perfect for Ali Khan, who had been denied custody of Yasmin and would now be more likely to be given the chance to take care of her. In court, Rita promised Khan that she would allow Yasmin to visit him in Europe for long stretches of time, and that she did not wish to deny him the love and affection of their daughter. The court ruled that Rita was not to be charged with willful neglect, but she must enroll Rebecca in school. Even though the proceeding had worked in her favor, Rita was incredibly embarrassed and upset at what she had unintentionally put her daughters through. Since Rita's finances were quickly dwindling, she and Dick set to live in a more serene and simple life. Were set to live a more serene and simple life. They moved into a bungalow in Lake Tahoe, where Rita was in almost total seclusion under Haynes's control. Shortly after moving to Nevada, Dick Haynes was once again threatened with deportation, causing him to decide to strike a deal with Columbia. He made a settlement with Harry Cohn that if four stipulations were met, Rita would return to work. 
One of the requirements was that Colombia would do whatever they could to reverse Haymes' deportation order. Another was that they would buy out Rita's production company, Beckworth Corporations, for $700,000. Ali Khan finally won the chance to have Yasmin come and visit him and his family in Europe after years of custody battles with Rita. Under the urging of Dick Haymes, Rita also signed a new contract with Columbia, 17 years after she had first signed on to work with the studio. She agreed to make two films for $150,000 each, beginning with a biblical epic called Joseph and His Brethren. Unfortunately, this deal meant that Rita was giving up her production company. This was a decision even Harry Cohen thought was unwise. He told Time Magazine that Hayworth might be worth $10 million today, easily. She owed 25% of the profits with her own company and had hit after hit, and she had to get married and had to get out of the business and took a suspension because she fell in love again. In five years, at two pictures a year at 25%, think of what she could have made. But she didn't make pictures. She took two or three suspensions. She got mixed up with different characters. Unpredictable. Rita's return to Hollywood was more about Dick Hames than it was about her. Producer Jerry Wald said that Hames did 98% of the talking at Rita's comeback press conference. He took over every aspect of the film, overseeing Rita's costume fittings, turning down co-stars, and speaking behind her back to producers and executives about decisions she supposedly wanted to make. Hames even convinced Columbia to loan him thousands of dollars, promising that he would pay them back. When Hames hadn't been cast as the titular Joseph like he'd wanted to, he forced Rita to pull out of the movie altogether. Columbia sued her for breaching contract and then suspended her. She toured alongside Hames, who had recently been freed from the threat of deportation, since Hawaii was now considered part of the United States. After one performance at the Coconut Grove nightclub, Hames struck Rita across the face. That was when she decided she had had enough. In November, Rita filed for divorce, saying that her husband used vile and abusive language to me, was quarrelsome with me, and used vile and abusive language in front of my children and servants. I felt if I continued to live with him as his wife, my health would be permanently injured. Unfortunately, she had little money after her four divorces, legal battles, and payments to Hames' ex-wives, therefore deciding to return to work with Columbia. Her next film was 1957's Fire Down Below, about three sailors who pick up a woman who needs illegal transports and she has no passport. While she referred to the movie as a pile of junk, she enjoyed working with co-stars Robert Mitchum and Jack Lemmon and got the chance to work in Trinidad, taking a much-needed vacation while also getting paid. Unfortunately, her fears about aging became even worse during this period, especially after a producer complained about how long lighting was taking to get set up, commenting, No matter how long you take, Hayworth ain't gonna look any younger. Rita was sitting nearby and burst into tears. Her daughters, Rebecca and Yasmin, were one of her sole sources of happiness and comfort. Her co-star, Jack Lemon, said, It's heartwarming to see Rita with those two kids. I spent a couple of afternoons with the three of them, and I've never seen a warmer, nicer mother-daughter relationship anywhere. That year, Rita also appeared in Pal Joey, her last musical, alongside Frank Sinatra and Kim Novak. What's with the watch bit? It's getting late. Hurry up and finish your drink. What for? We got all night. Oh, no, we haven't, Beauty. I'm giving a dinner party. So? Put another plate at the table. It would make 13, and I'm superstitious. Novak was being groomed by Columbia as the next big star to replace Rita, 
who was more than happy to pass her crown over. The three leads got along well, Sinatra noting, I don't mind being in the middle of that sandwich. Rita's stand-in, Grace Godino, recalled one incident in which Novak's dress split open during dress rehearsal and production had to stop while they fixed it. Rita was at that period of life when it just wasn't important to her. She walked over to her chair and sat there with that cute smile of hers. She didn't have to say it, but you could just sense, she thought. Let them have their fun. Here's the new sex pop they're going to have to worry about. I don't have to worry about that anymore. During the filming of Pal Joey, Rita became involved with producer Sam Hill, who is professional partners with Burt Lancaster. He took it upon himself to get Rita roles that showed off her acting abilities, even though she was hoping to be done with acting, having completed her two required films for Columbia. Hill got her cast in 1958's Separate Tables, a rare dramatic role for Rita, alongside Lancaster. Director Delbert Mann said he was concerned because I had never seen Rita do anything remotely resembling this. As rehearsals went along, he changed his mind. There were a lot of things in Rita's heart and mind and soul that were working for us in separate tables. The character is frightened of being alone and needs someone to cling to, and I had a great sense that a lot of the truth of that performance came from Rita herself. In a 1967 interview, Rita discussed her experiences within Hollywood. It was helpful to me uh, for a long time, and then after a certain time, it became really a hindrance, you know, kind of for my career, because I was made uh, as an image of a certain kind of, of, uh, you know, that particular thing that they do when they make a star, they're like, uh, you know, I don't want to be Gilda all my life. I mean, I, I, I feel I am an actress and I have talent and I can be, I can do many, many other parts, such as the one I just finished in this picture that Terence Young directed with Tony Quinn and uh, Rosanna Schiaffino. It's a other sort of part. It's another kind of thing. And, and, but, but you see, I, I started to break away from that star system when my contract was up with that particular studio. I was there for 18 years since a child. And so when, I, when that contract was up, then I, I uh, went out on my own. And I was able to choose my own um, roles, my own parts. And fortunately, some very good ones came along, like uh, separate tables with Deborah Carr and Bert Lancaster and David Niven and, uh, you know, wonderful. And I had a great role in it. And that started, that changed my, my pace. While Rita was proud of her performance in Separate Tables and considered it one of her best, she continued to tell Hill that she was through with acting, but he always managed to, quote, bring her around. She was cast in more dramatic roles like They Came to Cordura in The Story on Page One. During her marriage to Hill, Rita began drinking heavily and showing early signs of Alzheimer's that would come to affect her in later years. Her daughter Yasmin said, She would suddenly be in a bad mood and I'd never know why. We would be sitting at the dinner table, and suddenly she'd become furious. Then she would go off to her room and come back several minutes later, as if nothing had happened. I always thought that it was because of her drinking, but I never really saw her drink that much. Rita divorced Hill in 1961, only three years after they had wed. She began seeing actor Gary Merrill, who was about to star in a Broadway production called Step on a Crack, and got Rita cast opposite him. Unfortunately, she had to pull out after problems arose during rehearsals, likely due to memory problems that she was facing more severely now. Rita's friend, fellow actor and dancer Anne Miller, recalled that Rita had a very hard time learning the lines. I thought this was very peculiar because when Rita was at Columbia, she was never like that. 
Learning lines was no problem for her at all. She was very professional, a lady who really knew her craft. Rita was later cast to replace Lauren Bacall in the Broadway show Applause after a few more years of movies that weren't very successful. She was hoping the production would help put her name back into the American spotlight. Her most recent movie, Road to Selena, was filmed in the Canary Islands and had a very brief United States release. The Village Voice wrote, If your taste runs to 70s actors having 60s sex in a 50s film so that a 40s star can suffer, then Road to Selena is for you. Rita was nervous to work on the movie, but director George Lautner said she was extremely happy during shooting and even cried when filming was over. Robert Mitchum offered Rita a role in what would be her last movie, Wrath of God. She so desperately needed the money that she agreed to do it. Her hairstylist, Lindell Kale, said that Rita came to me and asked me if I'd help her to remember her dialogue. I'd take her into her room and I'd teach her one line. Then she'd go out and they'd shoot the one line. And then we'd go back into the room and do another line. Her co-star, Franklin Jella, said it took them almost an entire workday to film a single scene. Gathered maps and mineral reports, which you might like to examine. Also, I have arranged for you to go to the mine tomorrow. You may find the mine rather primitive by your standards. It has been a long time since it was properly worked. Not since my husband... Uh, we are in need of capital investment to uh, modernize our equipment, gentlemen. Though it is an old mine, it is still rich in ore deposits. I will provide you with assay reports for the last five years the mine was fully operating. That would, of course, be useful. But you understand that we must make our own testings. We have unfortunately invested where mines have been uh, favorably salted. It is to be hoped that that is not a reflection upon the honor of my house, Senor Jennings. Thankfully, everyone working on the film was incredibly thoughtful and patient with Rita, who began struggling with more than just her memory. She became incredibly cross she became incredibly claustrophobic, and one scene inquired required her to walk into a cave, but she just couldn't do it. Landell Kale ended up putting on a wig and did it instead. After filming ended, Rita returned to California and displayed even more erratic behavior. She would call her friends in the middle of the night, and if they called her back, she wouldn't remember ever phoning them in the first place. Sometimes she would let her dogs loose so she could go and find them, and possibly run into someone to talk to. Thankfully, her good friend Glenn Ford had moved in next door and built a connecting pathway between their homes so they could spend time together. In 1972, Rita went to London to work on Tales That Witness Madness, where her side effects from dementia were at their worst. She suffered from extreme phobias, hallucinations, and violent outbursts. Her friend Curtis Roberts agreed to accompany her during filming, and later said Rita was completely sober at this point, even though all of her outbursts were blamed for alcohol use by fellow cast and crew members. She ended up dropping out of the movie, ironically being replaced by Kim Novak. Despite Rita's obvious struggles, she was still forced to make many public appearances and sell her star image. Hermes Pan said, she had almost a glazed look, like she was very bored, or had just given up. Well, that's Hollywood publicity, you know. They'll squeeze the blood out of you if they can. Though she still found moments of serenity. Once, while in Rio de Janeiro, Rita disappeared and was later found a mile up the road on the beach where there was a group of kids flying these beautiful kites. And there was Rita, just sitting there on the beach with these little kids, flying the kites with them. When she returned to the U.S., Rita was admitted to a hospital and given several tests, diagnosed with a disability 
quote, as a result of mental disorder or impairment by chronic alcoholism. This was not the case, though, and it wasn't until almost three years later that Rita was correctly diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. She was almost entirely unable to take care of herself, so her daughter Yasmin became her conservator. Yasmin moved her mother in with her in an adjoining suite in her New York apartment complex and took immense care to help Rita feel safe and content. Most of the time, Rita was quiet and did not recognize those around her, but whenever music was played, she would briefly come to life. Yasmin became a spokesperson for the Alzheimer's Disease and Related Disorders Association, putting together a fundraising gala in her mother's name to help the cause. She said, It's so hard to know what Rita is feeling. I don't know what she can understand, but there are fleeting moments when I'm sure that she's at least a little bit aware. I do know that she needs my love, and in some way, I bring her joy. After slipping into a brief coma, Rita passed away on May 14, 1987, at the age of 68. As biographer Karen Roberts Frenzel wrote, Rita Hayworth was so much more than just a queen of the silver screen. Part of her appeal lies in the fact that she was, in real life, the antithesis of a movie star. She wasn't interested in the trappings of fame. She was a real woman, strong and able to take care of herself, but in search of a happiness that ultimately that ultimately eluded her. Through it all, she remained a gentle spirit, a loving mother and friend, and a woman of pride. Rita Hayworth also gave, and continues to give, joy to millions of film lovers the world over. That will never stop. Thank you all so much for listening to the episode. I hope you enjoyed. Make sure to join me and my co-host Louise next week to talk through Rita Hayworth's life, films, and just overall how much we love her. This episode was researched, written, recorded, and edited by me, Audrey Cornell. The music was written by Nia D'Amelio. Gone But Not Forgotten is a part of the Trident. To learn more about our videos, live shows, and podcasts, please visit thetridentnetwork.com.